The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Some of you may have heard the story of how I met my wife, Trisha, uh, but in case you haven't, uh, I will share a little bit with you today. Trisha and I were actually serving at a Young Life camp over in Minnesota. We were there for a month, and she was the cute gear locker girl, right? I was just like the lowly maintenance guy. She was a cute gear locker girl. And my roommate at the time, his name is also Dan, uh, he had this major crush on Trisha. And so I spent the month trying to uh, get Trish to like this other guy, Dan. And so for the whole month, I'm trying, I'm like, man, that guy, Dan, he's such an amazing guy, isn't she? And she's like, yeah, he's pretty cool, you know. Um, Well, the last night that we were at camp. I remember we were sitting in the kitchen of the camp, and uh, it was me, uh, the other Dan, and Trish. And we were sitting there, and we were eating cereal, and uh, we were talking, and we're finishing up the cereal. And the other Dan leaves to go to, his, go, go to bed for the night. And so Trish and I uh, follow shortly after. And I remember Trish was going up the stairs to the woman's dorm, and just about two steps from the top, maybe even the top, I said to her, hey, you want to go for a walk? And she said, sure. And so we went for a walk. And uh, as they say, the rest is history, right? The rest is history. But I thought, how different would my life be if I hesitated two more seconds? How different would my life be if I didn't say, hey, Trish, you want to go for a walk? If I didn't date Trish, get engaged to Trish, marry Trish, how different would my life be? It's like, you know, it's a wonderful life, right? Like the Dan Jackson version. What would life be without Trish? I, I don't think I would be in Wisconsin. I grew up in St. Louis. I'm a Missouri boy. Trish is from Wisconsin. There, there'd probably be no Jacob's Well. Um, we, we would, I wouldn't have four amazing kids, Corbin, Caleb, Carissa, and Cooper. Um, I wouldn't watch romance movies if I wasn't married to Trish. Life would be radically different, radically different, right? All because of one person, all because of one person. Everything changes, how I spend my finances, what I do with my free time, what I do for fun, everything changes. John, in his gospel, is going to tell us if one person, like my wife, can revolutionize my life, how much more can God revolution your life? If you are in a relationship with God, your life cannot remain unchanged. It must change drastically. It affects all that you are. It affects everything you do. It affects your desires, your wants, how you spend your money. It affects how you spend your schedule, what you do, what you don't do. It affects all of those things. And so that's what we're going to see from the Gospel of John this semester. As we look through it, uh, through chapter 12, is who is this man Jesus? And why does it matter to my life? Why should it change my life? How does it impact my life? How does this one person, Jesus, change everything? If you would open up to John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18. It's page 886 in the Red Bible. And I was told by Murray Fralick that it's page 1299 in the Kids Bible. So, I think that's, I probably shouldn't have said his name in case it's wrong, but uh, page 1299 in the Kids Bible, 
page 886 in the Red Bible. Uh, The Gospel of John is written by John's son of Zebedee. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was the beloved disciple of Jesus. Uh, The reason why I chose the Gospel of John is because John is actually different than the other three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. They contain a lot of the same stories. John kind of says, you know what? All those stories have been told. I'm going to tell a whole different set of stories about Jesus. And so he goes on to tell all these different things. Like, for example, in John's Gospel, you won't really find parables. You won't find the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, you, You won't find a lot of things. John takes half of his book to focus on the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus, which we won't actually get to in this sermon series. But he spends a lot of time looking at the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't talk about the early days of his birth or his baptism, right? Or he does do baptism, but his birth. And so it's a very different gospel. He uses a very poetic, very beautiful, beautiful language. And he tells us in the passage why he does it. In John 20, verse 30, if you could put that up there, Tim. John 20, verse 30. John tells us why he writes this gospel. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing not just so that your life can be changed. John is writing so that you may have life, period. So let's start looking in John chapter 1. Again, page 886 in the Red Bible, page 1299 in the Children's Bible. John 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. Read along with me if you would. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That all men, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the light, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for the ways that it stretches our mind and our imagination to start to comprehend how glorious Jesus is. Open our hearts this morning, God. Our distracted hearts. Help us to focus on the good news that we read in this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John 1, 1 through 18 is kind of like a table of contents. It pulls up a lot of major themes that are explained throughout the Gospel of John. And so what we're going to do is kind of have an overview of the Gospel of John just by going through John 1, 1 through 18. Uh, As I started to prepare this sermon, I was amazed to see that many of my favorite uh, preachers and commentators (laughs) did not just dedicate one sermon to this passage, but five, six, one even had 50 sermons on John 1, 1 through 18. And so we are going to get a preview. Uh, We certainly won't cover everything that's in it, but we're going to start to get an understanding of the story of Jesus, who Jesus is, what he came to do. And there are four things that John claims that we're going to look at today. The first is that Jesus is our God. Whether you believe in him or not, Jesus is your God. The second is that Jesus is a man. Third, Jesus is a reject. And fourth, Jesus is our life. So let's start at the top. Jesus is our God. First, we see Jesus' divinity emphasized in verse 1, where it says Jesus is the Word. The New Testament word for word uh, is logos, okay? So the New Testament word for word is logos. So verse 1 says, if you read along with me, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Now what is this, what is this logos? What is this word? What does it mean? What does it mean that this logos was with God and was God? Well, if you look down just a few more verses at verse 14, we see and we know what this logos is. In verse 14, it tells us the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. This word, this logos is Jesus. And it's saying that the logos was not only with God in relationship with God, but this logos, this word, Jesus is God himself. Now, why does John use this imagery? Why does John call Jesus the Word? Well, in in the time when John was writing this, there were two major audiences that he was writing this to, the Greeks and the Jews. And for both of them, the word logos had extreme meanings to them, okay? It was deeply profound to them. First, when you look at the Greeks, the Greeks were heavy into philosophy, right? And the word logos was central kind of to all of their theology, their philosophy. They talked about the Logos all the time. It was kind of the air that they breathed, the Logos. There's an amazing quote from Plato that came 400 years before Jesus was born, all right? And James Montgomery Boyce talks about this in his commentary, so I'm just going to read it to you. Quote, Plato, we are told, once turned to that little group of philosophers and students that had gathered around him, during the Greek golden age in Athens, and said to his followers, and here it is, this is amazing, he says, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. And now John is saying, yes, Plato, and the logos has come. Now God has revealed to us perfectly 
Do you believe it? John is declaring that an unknown God of the Greeks, the hidden God of the Middle Ages, the silent God of the 20th century is neither unknown, hidden, nor silent. He is fully revealed in Jesus, unquote. Logos had a profound meaning to the Greeks. It was the word of God to them, the message of God. And John's saying the Logos has come. To the Jews, the term Logos also had a profound meaning as well. For them, it was the Word of God, the Old Testament, just as we call the Bible the Word of God. The Old Testament was their Word of God. It was the story of God's redemption, God's creation, God's righteousness, God's justice. And what is being said here by John is that the culmination of God's story of salvation, of his message of redemption, has arrived in human form. So we know Jesus is divinity by the emphasis on him as the word. Secondly, we see Jesus is the creator. If you look here, you'll see in verse 2, talking about the logos, the word, it says, he was in the beginning with God. And then notice the emphaticness of verse 3. All things were made through him. That would be enough, right? And without him was not anything made that was made. So whatever you look at, a butterfly, a tree, your own hand, your fingernail, you can point to it and say, Jesus made that. (laughs) Jesus is creator. Verse 10 goes on to say, he was in the world and the world was made through him. John 1.1 even echoes Genesis 1.1 where it says, in the beginning. And so what we learn is that the creator God is composed of Jesus. It was a Trinitarian creation. Jesus is creator. Jesus is God. God's word is effective. God's word is powerful. It creates. Genesis 1.3 says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Isaiah has a powerful passage about the word of God. It says in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For God, a word spoken is a deed done. It is accomplished. Jesus Christ is the word of God. He has come to accomplish his purpose. The darkness will not overcome it. The light will be triumphant. I have a friend who was um, a Muslim, who was raised Muslim, and he had heard, uh, you know, if you want to attack Christianity, here's what you do. Just tell them, ask them, does the Bible ever claim that Jesus is God? Does Jesus ever claim to be God? Well, there are many passages in the Bible that do claim it, but this is one passage where we see the word is God. The word is Jesus. And so if someone ever comes to you and says, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Bible never claims for him to be God. You can point here to John 1. There's other passages that we'll see where Jesus says, I am, which is the name of God. But here we see Jesus is God, the word, which is God. Secondly, we see Jesus is man. Now, this is the doctrine of the incarnation. Many of you have probably heard of the word incarnation. It's a big word, um, but it has extremely profound meaning. The incarnation simply means that God became a man, that God became flesh. Now, this is easy to, 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 to understand as a definition, 
but it is extremely difficult to fathom. To fathom that the creator of the universe was created in the womb of a teenage girl. To fathom that the flesh maker became flesh. To fathom that the king of the universe traded the throne room of heaven for the brokenness of this world. That the infinite became finite and the word became flesh. Verse 14 talks about this. It says, and the word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God became flesh. God became a man. He did not stop being God, but he also fully became man. This is earth-shattering. This is powerful. Could you imagine if you were Mary, the mother? And, and here you are, and you're thinking, I'm changing God's diapers, right? Hey, is that, hey God, how does the soup taste today, right? Or, or, or praying to a God that is asleep just across the wall from you, right? Like, God became a man. This is crazy. You know, the incarnation, if the incarnation is true, It will revolutionize our life as we understand it, as we grasp the weight of this, that God became a man. Let me give you four applications of why the incarnation is so impactful in our life. The first is this. Because the incarnation is true, Jesus understands what you are going through. Jesus knows what it's like to live in a broken world. He knows what it's like to get sick, to have a cold, to be stood up, to be denied, to be betrayed. Jesus knows all those things. Secondly, Jesus is able to be our representative. He is able to represent humanity. He is able to represent you on the cross because he became a man. Third, we can better know our heavenly father because of the incarnation. Incarnation. It said at the end of our passage that, that no one has seen God, but Jesus has come to make the father known. If you want to know what your heavenly father looks like, Study and understand who Jesus is. They have the same character, the same tenderness, the same love, the same desire for you as Jesus. Finally, as we grasp the incarnation, it transforms our heart and our life and our purpose. Let me give you an example. It's the story of a pastor named Lee Anderson. And he had an experience that deeply moved him. Several years ago, he went to Manila. And when he went to Manila, uh, they were showing him around the city. And one of the stops on their tour was a trash dump outside of town, a garbage dump. And they went out there. And as they went out there, he was thinking, why am I going out to this garbage dump? Well, he gets out to the garbage dump. And there is thousands of people that are living on this dump. Thousands of people who have put up shacks, who have made their home on this trash heap. The the families would send their kids out in the morning to go collect the new food so they could bring it in and have breakfast and dinner at night. Everything, they they just lived on this trash heap. Some of the people actually never left the trash heap their entire life. One of the most amazing things is that on that trash heap were two American missionaries, people who have experienced the comfort that we are blessed with in America, but people who have become incarnate into that trash heap. They have gone into their world, into their mess to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, 
Why would they do this? Why would they give up the comforts of America? Why would they give comforts of their home, leave their friends and leave their family to go to a trash heap in another country? Why would they do this? It's because they understood the incarnation. They understood that Jesus Christ came into our life, into our trash heap, not only to tell us the good news, but to be the good news, to accomplish our salvation, to give us life to the fullest. You see, we're, we talked about earlier how we're going to start going to Faith Transformation House. These are men who are coming off the streets. Uh, they, they have jobs. They're trying to work so that they can get into their own home. And the question is, why in the world would we spend our time going down and being Jesus' hands and feet to these men who are broken, who are hurting, who are trying to get their feet back under them? Why would we do this? It's because the incarnation is true. Because Jesus Christ came into our life. He fed us. He loved us. He cared for us. You see, if you have no interest in loving, broken, sinful, messed up people, if you have no interest in that all, you need a radical new understanding of the incarnation. Because that is exactly what the God of the universe did when he came into earth, when he came into your messy life to love you and care for you. Because God had done that In Jesus Christ, when he did not have to, our hearts are transformed to go and be incarnate and love the other messy, broken sinners of the world. So we see Jesus became a man. Jesus became incarnate. Next, we see Jesus is a reject. Now, I realize calling your Lord and Savior a reject might seem like a quite offensive thing to say, but it's absolutely true. As a matter of fact, I would assert that Jesus is the biggest reject that ever walked the face of the earth. Have you ever heard a preacher say that before? Jesus is the biggest reject that ever walked the face of the earth. Look in verse 11. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The world which he created, the, the people that were there to worship him, did not even worship him. Let me back up. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. Verse 10, and I actually have three ways that Jesus was rejected. The first, Jesus was rejected by the world. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So those whom Jesus created were so clouded by sin, so clouded by misunderstanding that when Jesus came into the world, instead of celebrating God becoming flesh, they rejected him. Secondly, Jesus was rejected by the Jews. Verse 11, it says, He came to his own, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. These were the people that were worshiping him for centuries, or should have been. And yet when he came, they rejected him as well. But none of these are as bad as the worst rejection people Jesus faced. You know, the Jews, um, they handed Jesus over to the authorities that he might be killed. His disciple Judas betrayed him handing him over. His other disciples abandoned him. They denied knowing him. Jesus was spat on. Jesus' flesh was ripped off his back. Thorns pounded into his head. People mocked him. Jesus knew what it was like to be a reject. Jesus was the greatest reject the world has ever seen. But the worst reject Jesus endured is found in Mark 15, verse 33. When Jesus is Hanging on the cross, we read of this passage. And when the sixth hour had come, 
There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus do this? Why did Jesus go to the cross just to be rejected by his heavenly father? Why would he do it? He did it so that you and I would not have to be rejected. See, our sin demands God's rejection, doesn't it? God cannot entertain our sin. He cannot put up with our sin. He must punish our sin. Jesus Christ went to the cross, was rejected by, the, by, his, by his father, that you and I may be acceptable and beautiful before him, that we never have to fear rejection from God if we trust in Jesus Christ. That leads to our final point, which is that Jesus is our life. In verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life and light are major themes throughout the book of John. What life is he talking about here? Well, we talked about how all of us have life, right? That, that, that creation happened through Jesus. All of you are here. All of you are breathing by the common grace of God. That, that God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus and the Father created us. It was a gift of his grace. And so he gave us physical life. But what we find out here is that physical life is not all the life that there is. There is also a spiritual life. And though we are born physically alive, we are born spiritually dead. And we need another life. Verse 12 goes on to talk about this. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, this is not just intellectual assent, but but holding on, grasping Jesus, being in relationship with him. It says, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Born not of flesh, not of man, but the will of God. Here's the thing. Breathing is not living. (laughs) There is a rebirth that must take place in our life. We are born like statues. We have the image of humanity on us, but inside our hearts are like stone towards God. We are spiritually dead. John 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, you must be born again. You must have this new life, this second birth to have life abundantly, to have life to the fullest. You might be sitting here today saying, you know, I've been coming to church or I haven't been coming to church. How do I know if I have new life? How do I know if I have life in Christ? How do I know if I've been born again? Well, I have a test for you. Two questions. First is this. Have you understood that you were spiritually dead? Do you acknowledge that you have been spiritually dead in your life apart from Christ? You see, dead people don't know that they're dead, right? A dead raccoon on the road does not know that it's dead. You take Lazarus, for example. Lazarus was dead and in the tomb. Lazarus did not know he was dead until he was alive again. And once he was alive, he worshiped and followed and loved Jesus even more because Jesus brought him from death into life. Do you know that at one time you were spiritually dead? Here's the second question for you. To know if you have been born again, are the grave clothes 
fallen off. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, they, they, they took off the grave clothes. When we come into new life in Jesus Christ, the grave clothes start to unravel. The, the grave clothes of envy, of lust, of hatred, of selfishness, of whatever it might be, of, of self-reliance, those grave clothes start to fall off. And not that we will be perfect in this life, but the fruit of the Spirit starts to be born. You see, a, a, a living tree will bear fruit, but a dead tree won't. This is how we know if we have been born again, if we have new life. Now, you might be sitting here and saying, you know, I, I'm not a Christian, um, but my life is pretty good. You know, I have a good job, a good family, uh, whatever it might be. I, I watch cool movies. You know, I, I'm really good at, at John Madden football, whatever it might be, right? Like, I have a pretty good life. I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. It's not a big deal. My life is pretty good. Let me end with this. You know, um, that trash heap that we talked about in Manila? One of the things that amazed me about that story, other than the art incarnation, which is unbelievable, but one of the things that amazed me is there were people on that trash heap who never left the trash heap their entire life. They never walked down the street to the city to experience Manila. They just stayed there the whole time. If you had a discussion with that person, what would you say? You would say, listen, there is indoor plumbing. There is heat. There is air conditioning. There is a permanent roof over your head. Go and explore. Seek to get off this trash heap, right? Why do they stay there? It's because they don't know anything different. Maybe you think your life is fine apart from Jesus Christ. But I would challenge you, the reason why you think that is because you have no idea about the life that Jesus has to offer. You have never experienced the glory of it. Life is not perfect. But Jesus comes to us. He walks us off the trash heap. The trash becomes less. The grass becomes more. Life becomes more. And then we look forward to the one day in heaven where there will be a new city with streets paved of gold. This is the life that Christ has for us. If you're here today and you are just checking out Christianity, if you're checking out Jesus, I'd encourage you, to trust in Christ for your salvation, to experience this new life that God gives to those who trust in him. If you're not ready to do that, I encourage you to come back to continue to see what does it mean to know and to love Jesus, to have a life in him. Who is this Jesus? Because what we're going to be doing as we walk through the gospel of John is we will be sitting on the trash heap and we will be pointing and saying, there is something better at the end of the trash heap of your life. And it is is glorious. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you come to give us life, life abundantly, Lord God, a life with you, a life that we certainly do not deserve. Lord, we pray that we would have a radical understanding of the incarnation, Lord, that it would move us to be incarnate in our world, to love others, to know how much you love us and care for us. All that you did to leave the throne room of heaven, come to this broken, messy earth that would reject you time and time again. That you suffered the ultimate rejection of the Father on our behalf so we would only know his acceptance and his love for all eternity. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.